And now we turn to clinical research on breast cancer and specifically recent developments that have had a major and direct impact on patient care. For the last year, this series has discussed many different aspects of the so-called adjuventrastuzumab or Herceptin trials, which are widely considered one of the major advances in the history of breast cancer research. Dr. Miller commented on how the four major trastuzumab studies have impacted her decision-making in the adjuvant setting, and you're about to hear Ms. Barbara Harkins, an oncology nurse who's the Director of Protocol Development and Management for the National Surgical Adjuvant Breast and Bowel Project Operations Center. Ms. Harkins was right in the middle of this historic story, and I was interested to hear not only what happened with Herceptin, but also what we should be looking for in terms of new trial concepts coming out of the NSABP. But to begin, I wanted to hear what happened in the Herceptin war room, and Ms. Harkins put the evolution of this breakthrough in perspective. I was very fortunate, I think, in my experience in research nursing to have been at the operations center for NSABP in the clinical coordinating section at the time that the ideas of moving Herceptin from the setting of metastatic breast cancer into the adjuvant setting first started to take place. And I think for those who were involved in the discussions at that time, we would all recall that there was a feeling of great importance in moving this drug into the adjuvant setting, but also a feeling of needing to be very cautious and careful and responsible about the possible cardiotoxicity. These patients are patients who, although they had HER2-positive breast cancer, all had at least one axillary lymph node that was determined to be positive they still were considered to be disease-free at the time they would have been considered for the trial. So there was a lot of caution and care to decide what type of monitoring there should be for the cardiotoxicity. Are we ready to move the drug into the adjuvant setting? And there were a lot of discussions involving physicians from NCI and those from Genentech and others. Other consultants who were considered to be experts in cardiotoxicity were all consulted to make important decisions about how cardiotoxicity should be monitored trying to decide what's the best way to measure the left ventricular ejection fraction. Should it be by echocardiogram or should it be by scan? Should we try to control which method was used? How many should be done? What should the timing be in reference to their anthracyclines? On B31, the patients were all going to be getting four cycles of AC. So we were following a known cardiotoxic drug with what was also known to have cardiac implications. So there were a lot of careful discussions and some hard decisions in the aspect of cardiotoxicity. It was decided that MUGAs should be done. Perhaps they would be less variable. A lot of thought went into the instructions that we incorporated into the protocol to encourage investigators to schedule patients at the same locations to have their MUGA scans and to try to perform those MUGA scans at the time points as close as possible to the time points that had been designated in the protocol. 
It was also a long discussion with regulatory agencies, the FDA and NCI, and other experts to try to determine what the rules should be for allowing a patient on the trial and for allowing a patient following four cycles of doxorubicin and cyclophosphamide to who should be allowed to go on to receive Herceptin based on their LVEF. So there were important rules about administration and continuation of Herceptin for the patients who were randomized to receive it. I know eventually the trial did finally get started around 2000 or 2001. What was the reaction of the patients and the physicians to the study in the first couple of years? Well, I think the reactions were positive for the most part, but the same as what I've just described about the sense of responsibility about using caution with the agent to be sure that this was a safe choice for patients and certainly doing careful screening of their cardiac history and explaining the risks and benefits of the trial. So as always with the new study, there's a lot of orientation to the protocol and identifying what the best ways are to introduce the study to patients. In addition to looking at cardiotoxicity issues on B31, we want to be sure that assessing the patient's HER2 status, that that was being handled in a consistent manner. The testing for the HER2 amplification and overexpression of HER2 was not as commonly done then as it is now, and different pathologists used different techniques, and there was a lot of concern that we be sure that the patients who were going on the trial truly did have HER2-positive breast cancer. So a lot of the questions and answers from our investigators and a lot of the procedural setup to get going on accrual to the trial had to do with working out ways to handle HER2 testing. NSABP made the decision to require, if there were two methods being used, amplification by fish or overexpression of HER2 protein tested by IHC. And the decision was made that if IHC testing was being done, that it had to be performed at laboratories that did high volume. So that was also part of the decisions that NSABP made to use some caution going into the trial. So I would say the first two years, there were, you know, a lot of planning, a lot of discussions about the best way to do that. And I guess typically in adjuvant trials, the first thing that comes through are data on side effects and toxicity. And of course, as you mentioned, the heart was the primary concern. So I think it was the San Antonio meeting in 2004 when the first time the cardiac data were presented. Yes, that's correct. What was the take at that point about the overall risk to patients? A lot of steps were incorporated into the protocol for careful monitoring of cardiotoxicity. We knew if the trial showed a benefit that this would be the data that in addition to benefit from Herceptin that investigators and patients would want to know the most. So all MUGA scans, the reports from all MUGA scans done, whether they were a discretionary MUGA done requested by the investigator or the scheduled MUGAs done throughout the protocol, we collected all the ventricular ejection fractions, any signs or symptoms at all that could even hint that there might be an early congestive heart failure were submitted in an expedited manner. All reports came in in an expedited manner, and the data was monitored very, very closely. NSABP also organized a cardiac review panel to look at cases where a decision had to be made if it truly was 
felt to be representative, whatever problem the patient had had, was it representative of a cardiomyopathy that could be attributed to Herceptin? So I think when enough data was made available to be able to do an analysis of cardiac events, we felt confident that we had collected a lot of data in a careful and consistent manner, as carefully and consistently as is possible, when the investigators who are enrolling the patients are at all different kinds of settings, community hospitals, academic centers across the United States, Canada, Puerto Rico. So I think we were confident that the data was real and analyses were done with the data and we're very pleased to know that while it is acknowledged that there was cardiotoxicity, that the rates of the cardiac events fell within what was considered by everyone when the protocol was written to be an expected and acceptable rate. And so it was a relief to know that the cardiac events, although there, and it's very important that monitoring continue in the non-research setting, these patients should be having regular assessment of cardiac events. It was interesting because I guess it had been determined ahead of time that if there was more than a 4% excess risk of cardiac toxicity, the trial would stop. And actually, I think what you guys first reported was just slightly under that, I think between 3 and 4%. Yes, it was. It was under, but it was enough under, and the threshold had been set, I think, low enough that everyone felt that as long as we had not exceeded that threshold, that it was acceptable to continue. In fact, we had a plan built into the protocol for a possible hiatus in accrual. If there was any concern at all that the incidents seen up until that point were worrisome and would need more careful monitoring. The NSABP Data Monitoring Committee, as well as regulatory agencies, looked carefully at the data, and the decision was made that a hiatus and accrual was not needed. Can you talk a little bit about when you first started to see the results in terms of the efficacy, relapse rate, the anti-tumor effect? When did those data start to become available? Well, I think that, as in any clinical trial, the efficacy data and the analysis of those events is very carefully protected by the statisticians and by the data monitoring committee. That data is not shared, not with the public, certainly. We don't want to influence an investigator's decision about what treatment to give to a patient until there is enough data to feel sufficiently secure that your results can stand the test of analysis and time. So I have to say that although internally we knew that there were no indications that we would need to close the trial for lack of efficacy, data was not announced to us internally at the operations center and most of the staff at the biostatistical center until others knew as well, until the data monitoring committee was given the data. Can you summarize what was seen? Well, it was dramatically successful, as I think most who have read about the results of B31. And I should probably stop to say that NSABP B31 was the first protocol to be drafted and the study got started and was the simplest design in terms of a two-arm design. The NCCTG collaborated with an NSABP and developed a similar but different trial, a three-arm trial, looking at different time points of introducing the Herceptin. (laughs) 
And we worked carefully with them to try to collect data in similar ways so that the data would be very comparable at the end. As both studies moved on in their accrual, it was decided that it would be beneficial for women with HER2-positive breast cancer if the answers to the question of Herceptin could be obtained as early as possible. And the NCI, as well as the FDA, reviewed carefully, scrutinized and reviewed a plan to merge data from the two groups. And the data was looked at together, which meant that we got to the answer sooner. So when the B31 data was being announced, it included data from the NCCTG trial and 9831. And right around that same time point, the HERA trial, another study, also was releasing data about Herceptin, and all of the data were consistently strongly, highly statistically significant in improvement of disease-free survival, of survival, also all supported the acceptability of the rate of cardiotoxicity. Some experts have stated that it is the most significant improvement in outcome of any breast cancer therapy during the history of developing breast cancer drugs. It was overwhelmingly positive. We, of course, keep in mind that this drug is used for the 25% of women who have HER2-positive breast cancer. These were women who had very worrisome prognoses. HER2-positive breast cancer is very aggressive. And with node-positive status going into the trial, these are women who were at very high risk for recurrence. And basically, getting the drug Herceptin reversed their prognosis from a very poor prognosis to a very good prognosis. We are still following patients, and over time, data will support longer results. But the data was so strong, and the trends were so strong for improved disease-free survival and survival, that there's no indication to think that it will not last the test of time. And I guess the bottom line here, summarizing all the trials, and there's also another study that subsequently came out from the BCRG, but the bottom line seems to be that in addition to whatever benefits the patient might receive from chemotherapy and from hormone therapy, there was an additional about 50% reduction in relapse rate with using trastuzumab. Is that sort of your take on it? Yes, that's correct. It's such exciting results and so hopeful for the development of other targeted therapies and of course, for women who had this very worrisome prognosis, doing so well, it was a very important celebratory moment for all of us in oncology. What were you actually doing, or when was it that you actually found out these results, and what was your reaction? I knew as soon as the data monitoring committee met, it was safe to release the results, and we knew we would need to work right away to begin to lay out plans for patients on the trial to be able to cross over from the arm that didn't receive Herceptin to be able to receive Herceptin. And that was a very busy time, but a very exciting time. Important decisions had to be made. At what point in their adjuvant therapy should they be able to begin Herceptin? How long after completion of their adjuvant chemotherapy would it be acceptable to introduce Herceptin into their adjuvant treatment regimen? So a lot of important decisions. So it was extremely busy. But throughout, I suppose my reaction was that every phone call that I had answered asking a question about the trial, about HER2 testing, about LVEFs, every issue that had come up, every minute spent was so worthwhile. It's not too often that you have 
have the opportunity to be this actively involved in such an exciting outcome to a clinical research program. One of the things that's very exciting about clinical research is seeing the stepwise progress of drugs and development. You know, you see in early trials, phase two trials, preclinical trials, and then moving into the metastatic setting and then the careful moving of the drug into adjuvant. But probably a lot of people would imagine at this point that the Herceptin story is over, and that's not true. At NSABP, we'll be looking at the use of Herceptin in DCIS. That's a trial that's in development now, and I think may be surprising to some nurses in the community. It seems an aggressive treatment, perhaps. Maybe that's what the first initial reaction might be for such early disease. But we know there will be women with DCIS who will go on to develop invasive breast cancer. And we also know that a greater percentage of DCIS is HER2 positive. So we are looking at a study to give a very short course of trastuzumab that is expected to be very well tolerated around the time of their radiation therapy. Because preclinical data suggests that trastuzumab is able to increase the activity of radiation. So this is a very exciting trial that will look at reducing the incidence of ipsilateral breast cancer recurrences after DCIS. What about for patients who have invasive breast cancer that are HER2 positive? What's the next step being discussed in terms of clinical research trials looking at those patients? Well... I think that what will be happening and probably already is happening is the development of trials that will look at taking these really excellent results and combining them with other therapies, other monoclonal antibodies that perhaps function in a different way or other chemotherapy regimens looking at Herceptin in the neoadjuvant setting for locally advanced tumors, a lot of different ways to apply the excellent results that occurred in the adjuvant setting and looking for creative and new settings to improve outcome for those patients as well. So I think that we'll see more of that happening. And then I think the work will have to take place to decide what's the optimum duration of trastuzumab or Herceptin, what is the best sequence, what is the combinations, just to continue to explore a way to optimize what were very good results, to optimize those with other combinations, other schedules. I know one thing that had been discussed at one point was adding in bevacizumab or Vastin to chemotherapy and trastuzumab. Is that still out on the table as a possibility? That idea is being explored. And that actually ties into another trial I wanted to ask you about as it relates to bevacizumab, and that's the neoadjuvant or preoperative study B40. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that trial, what the background is, and what its current situation is? For those who are familiar with NSABP trials, you will know that we have a history of being interested in neoadjuvant studies, and this is the latest example of that, and it will be opening later this summer. And this study has gone under several iterations, looking at various chemotherapy combinations and schedules. And then when the ECOG data came out demonstrating efficacy in the metastatic setting through the use of bevacizumab, it was decided to add bevacizumab to these chemotherapy regimens to try to answer several questions about neoadjuvant therapy. These are women who have... 
HER2 negative tumors and locally advanced breast cancer, not inflammatory breast cancer, but other large tumors in the breast, at least two CMs in the breast. And they will receive eight cycles of chemotherapy, three different chemotherapy regimens, actually each based with docetaxel or taxotere. So the first four cycles will be a docetaxel-based chemotherapy regimen, and then that will be followed by four cycles of doxorubicin and cyclophosphamide, or AC. The bevacizumab starts with the first cycle of the docetaxel-based chemotherapy. So the patient gets combined Bev and chemo for the first four cycles, and then for the first two cycles of AC. Some of the considerations that had to be thought about with giving bevacizumab preoperatively is that bevacizumab is an angiogenesis inhibitor, and considerations regarding healing had to be taken into account. So if we decided we made the decision to end the bevacizumab a little bit sooner than chemotherapy would be completed neoadjuvantly to be sure that the patient didn't have any more bevacizumab on board, so to speak, when she went to surgery. This is being planned with care and caution to be sure that there are not healing problems, any difficulties during surgery, or any healing problems postoperatively. And then the bevacizumab resumes as a single agent postoperatively to complete about a year of therapy. So the Bev is used both pre- and postoperatively, and with timing and a lot of consideration around the decisions about surgery. This trial that we're doing is the first trial to look at neoadjuvant bevacizumab. So a lot of thought had to go into discussions that should take place with patients about the kind of surgery they would have. We made the decision to not have patients who wanted to have immediate reconstruction because immediate reconstruction, inherently certain versions of immediate reconstruction might be difficult following a number of cycles of bevacizumab preoperatively and then the intention to resume bevacizumab postoperatively. So new issues had to be thought about as we developed the protocol in the treatment of women with breast cancer, neoadjuvantly especially. There also was some thoughtful decision-making that we needed to look at effects on cardiac function in these women. The cardiotoxicity profile is not the same as Herceptin, but bevacizumab during the colorectal studies was not being combined with the anthracyclines. So we wanted to be sure that there is no concern there on cardiac function by combining bevacizumab, giving it before and during the anthracycline chemotherapy. So we will be looking at ejection fraction on this trial as well and learning from some of the experiences that in B31, patients will be allowed to have their ejection fraction measured by ECHO or by MAGA. There will be scheduled time points when we will take a look at these. And it is not expected that there will be nearly the concern for cardiotoxicity, but it's a cautious approach to collecting good data early on so we can verify that. 
Now, of course, being in the neoadjuvant setting and adjuvant setting and early stage disease safety issues, just as we were talking about with Herceptin or Paramount, and you all have tremendous experience with adjuvant bevacizumab and colon cancer with your CO8 study that already has more than 2,000 patients. What are some of the issues that you're going to be looking at carefully in this neoadjuvant breast studies? And particularly, I'm curious about the hypertension. Well, we know that hypertension is an important issue with bevacizumab. We know this from the colorectal trials. These women will have their blood pressure and past cardiac history and meds assessed before coming on to the trial, and blood pressure will be monitored during the trial and certainly would be reported, and we will be looking at the hypertension data. I don't think that there is any greater concern for hypertension in this setting than there was in the colorectal setting, but it will definitely be evaluated. Any other concerns? No, I think our primary ones were the ones that I've mentioned so far. The taking a look at cardiotoxicity and being confident that the timing surrounding surgeries. Additional thought that I could throw out about the surgery effects is that we don't want to take for granted what the impact might be on surgical complications postoperatively. So we will do assessments at scheduled time points postoperatively for the sole purpose of looking at surgical complications, trying to see if there's a difference in populations and making sure that there's no risk for women to receive this drug neoadjuvantly and postoperatively as well. That's a really exciting study. Let me flip back to another trial. You mentioned the fact that there's some interest in looking at trastuzumab and DCIS. Can you talk about right now what your current trial, B35, is looking at in those patients with non-invasive breast cancer? B35, which coincidentally in talking about this today, just this week, we'll be closing to accrual. So we will be completing accrual by the end of the week to the trial. And it is looking at comparing tamoxifen and an aromatase inhibitor, anastrozole. The trial was developed following the ATAC trial and has been open for several years, accrued relatively rapidly, and was designed for women with DCIS. So these patients had to be postmenopausal because aromatase inhibitors are effective and safe only in postmenopausal women. So they were all postmenopausal women, and they were randomized to receive either tamoxifen or anastrozole, and that was given in a blinded fashion, double-blinded fashion. And they received five years of therapy, and we will continue to follow them for quite some time. So this trial, the collection of data for the trial and the treatment on the trial will continue for a number of years more, but accrual is going to be wrapping up this week. These patients are seen every six months. They are assessed carefully for any toxicities, any side effects, and overall patients tolerate the drugs really quite well. Do we have any data at all from this trial? No data that would be able to be released at this time point. There certainly isn't any indication that there is anything worrisome that would mean stopping accrual earlier. The data monitoring committee looks at the unblinded data every six months. And there's nothing there and a very tolerable rate of toxicity. There's been no indication that there would be any concern at all. So accrual continued without interruption, and women will continue to take the drug for five years. What is it that we're hoping to see in this study? As you mentioned, the ATT&CK trial and other studies have looked at aromatase inhibitors in invasive breast cancer. 
This is non-invasive breast cancer, almost more like a prevention kind of a setting where the side effects and tolerability are such issues. What do we know from the invasive trials in terms of what the effects were on second breast cancers and what the side effects and toxicities were of tamoxifen versus the aromatase inhibitors? Some of the endpoints of the trial would be looking at cancer events in the ipsilateral breast, the breast that had the DCIS. We will also be looking very carefully at contralateral breast events. So we are hoping to be able to say even more about those two endpoints at the end of this trial, which will be collecting quite a bit of data. An important part of any trial, when you are giving drugs that are well-tolerated and have very similar toxicity profiles is looking for self-reported data. And so a quality of life study was designed for B35 and is in an ongoing way being carried out by a subset of patients, about a third of the B35 population, a little over a thousand women will be participating in the quality of life trial. And they'll complete self-reported questionnaires about many aspects of how they're feeling, the effect of the drugs on any aspect of their lives, the possible impact that these drugs could have on their lives. And this data will be analyzed along with the efficacy data of the trial, and I think will be very important to look at. We collect the quality of life questionnaire every six months throughout therapy and one about six months after the end of therapy. So there will be a lot of good quality of life data. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of interest in the next prevention study, which I've heard is probably going to be an aromatase inhibitor versus one of the other two, probably raloxifene. What do you think the B35 study is actually going to show in terms of side effects and tolerability of the two agents and how that might translate into a preventive setting? I think that we're going to see that these drugs are tolerated fairly well and tolerated very well, but have problems associated with them that menopausal women who aren't taking these therapies face. So there will need to be attention paid to impact on bone mineral densities. We will be looking carefully at fracture rates in both B42. And the B42 trial, by the way, is looking at optimum duration of the aromatase inhibitor. And we can talk about that shortly. But both that trial and the prevention trial, the upcoming prevention trial, will look at assessment of bone mineral density and fracture rates to be sure that the aromatase inhibitors that have a greater impact on bone density than CIRMs do to carefully monitor that so that patients, if they're making this decision to go with an aromatase inhibitor, can do so from an informed standpoint, and we're sure that the risk-benefit profile is acceptable, especially in the prevention setting. Can you talk a little bit about the B42 study? The B42 trial is an interesting and exciting trial in itself, I think. As part of NSABP, a lot of care and analysis of data and review of data went into the decision about how long tamoxifen should be given. In the early years of tamoxifen, it was given for 10 years. Some physicians I know continue even longer than that, 
but the tamoxifen was continued for quite some time. And in careful review of data from several trials, it was determined that there was no added benefit to carry tamoxifen beyond five years, and that there, in fact, you could be increasing risk. And so a number of years ago, the duration of tamoxifen was well documented to need to end at five years. And all of our studies are written that way. And I think that's the common practice in communities just about everywhere that you stop tamoxifen at five years. We do not know, though, about aromatase inhibitors, and the decision cannot be based for aromatase inhibitors on data from just tamoxifen alone. So the question is, how long should an aromatase inhibitor continue? So B42 is designed for women who have had five years of adjuvant hormonal therapy already. They started their hormonal therapy following surgery. They were disease-free following surgery, took five years of adjuvant therapy, which could have included up to three years of tamoxifen, followed by at least two years of an aromatase inhibitor. And at the end of that five-year period, they are able to be enrolled in B42 and will be randomized to either an additional five years of an AI or to placebo. So it's a randomized, blinded, placebo-controlled trial to try to determine if extending the aromatase inhibitor for an additional five years increases the benefit from hormonal therapy. I think there's going to be a lot of excitement about that study because so many people have questions about what to do with patients. The last thing I want to ask you about is the Oncotype DX assay that's been studied using the data from NSABP trials. Can you talk a little bit about what your take is on that and particularly what you think it means in clinical practice? This is a really, really exciting time in breast cancer treatment and breast cancer research. We're going down avenues exploring science and methodology and therapies that not many years ago were only being thought about, physicians brainstorming about them, and they're now translating into clinical practice. It's very exciting to see that. The Oncotype DX is an exciting outcome of really important work that was done by Dr. Soon Paik, who is a pathologist, head of pathology with the NSABP, in conjunction with Genomic Health. And the wonderful thing, I think, about the outcome for me, someone who's been involved in developing trials, is that it is such an important and groundbreaking science and discovery that came about from tissue samples that women over the decades were willing to submit to tissue banks and to labs in order for this kind of work to be done. So it's very gratifying to see the outcome of that. And the results of this, of the Oncotype DX, will be that certain groups of women will be able to have an assay performed, uh, molecular profiling, basically, that will tell them whether or not they should have chemotherapy. Now, these are women who have early breast cancer, node-negative breast cancer, and estrogen receptor or progesterone receptor positive cancer will be able to have an assay like this to help them make a really difficult decision about whether or not they should have chemotherapy. I think over the years, it was felt that it was better to be safe in terms of administering chemotherapy than to not, even in women who had no negative disease. But we know that these chemotherapy drugs can carry with them significant toxicity and risks. 
So these were hard decisions for, I think, medical oncologists as well as for patients. And the development of this type of assay, and it's going to be now incorporated into a clinical trial called the Taylor RX trial that will be coordinated by ECOG, but I believe all cooperative groups will be participating in it, will be able to, for the first time, collect data about the outcomes of using this assay. And what the assay does is look at a number of genes and based on evaluation of these genes, come up with a recurrence score, or in other words, the likelihood of the breast cancer recurring and therefore the need to have chemotherapy or not have chemotherapy. The higher score, the more likely that the breast cancer would recur and the greater the need for chemotherapy. So women on the Taylor trial, if they have a high recurrence score, will get chemotherapy as well as hormonal therapy. And if they have a very low score, they will only get hormonal therapy. And if they have a score that falls in the middle, not low, not high, they'll be randomized to either get chemotherapy or not get chemotherapy. And I think this is such an exciting trial and will bring so much important data about the use of an assay like this, molecular profiling, to help make clinical decisions. When I think about the way that this type of assay, and I'm sure that more will be developed for more situations in the future, how that will change the conversations that oncologists and oncology nurses will have with their patients, it's really quite astounding that the more we learn about how breast cancer is behaving at the cellular level, the more that we can plan a treatment regimen that is going to be the best possible regimen for that individual patient and her cancer. And some of that's been being done over the years as we've learned more about hormone receptors and about her two positive breast cancer. But with each new type of assay that can be done and each new scientific discovery, we're able to optimize the therapy more and more and hopefully then reduce risks for patients. It's really a very exciting time and will be something that nurses need to really be able to understand how it works, answer questions, explain to patients. So I think that all nurses will be facing the beginning era of really being able to be comfortable with a new language, a new genetics-based language, a new targeted therapy language that they are very comfortable in translating that language into instructions and explanations that patients can understand. Whether or not they are getting an informed consent for a research trial or just explaining what's going to happen with the testing of their tumor and the therapy that will be recommended. The conversion to using these assays, of course, is something that takes some time and for, I think, investigators and nurses and patients alike to get comfortable, but we're well on our way, and it's very exciting, very exciting time. I guess I would wrap up my thoughts in terms of how important oncology nurses are to the successful implementation of these new targeted therapies in clinical practice, in the successful completion of research studies, and in every aspect, really, of patient care for women with breast cancer. The communication skills and the role of the nurse as communicator is vital here. 
I think that, as I was just saying earlier, it's a new language and so important for nurses to understand how does the drug work and why is it recommended for one patient, not for another. Being able to explain that and being able to understand the science behind it is so important. To be the translator of that for patients and for family members and also for other people involved in the healthcare team, looking at the unique safety profile for each of these targeted therapies, which can seem like they're very similar and yet could be quite different really in the impact on patient safety and being sure that every member of the healthcare team is informed about what the patient is getting and what it might mean for surgeries they have planned or for other medicines they're taking. This is not a new role for nurses. Nurses have always been an important and very key to the communication of the whole healthcare team and patient and family. It's just a matter of keeping up with the data, learning more about the science behind these findings, and modifying what they say to patients and what the whole care plans that are developed will be able to incorporate these targeted therapies in a successful way into the care plans for patients now, currently, and in the years to come. And then for nurses to be very excited about being able to be part as we transition from some of the therapies that have been around for a long time into new and exciting therapies.